Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Even when it seems like he's not there, he's there. Amen. He's making a way. He's a miracle worker. And he wants to make a way for us today out of whatever place we happen to be. Amen. Thank you, worship team. You may be seated. Welcome to the house of the Lord today. Good to see you. Kind of see you through the bright lights, but anyway, I'll get used to that again. <laughs> so today, my message is going to an unplanned place at an unplanned pace. And uh, certainly, if I lived in the Ukraine right now, that's what I'd be thinking. I didn't plan to go here. And uh, some of you are in situations as well. I got a phone call, or I should say an email from my mother this week and saying that uh, my aunt was rushed to the hospital just around Christmas time. She had to go to Sudbury Hospital and uh, just got the news that when she comes home, she's not coming home. <laughs> she's going to be there in the hospital. That's it. Her kidney has, uh, her kidneys are not functioning. Talk about going to an unplanned place. <laughs> And now, in the hospital, there will be a special wing for those people that are going at an unplanned pace, right? It happens. You know, many years ago, before some of you were born, in 1970, Lynn Anderson uh, had a number one song, and she sang a song that said, I never promised you a rose garden, right? <laughs> and then the next line in the song says, along with the sunshine... There's got to come a little rain sometime. <laughs> well, some of us don't find that we're in a rose garden, nor are we in a rainstorm, but we're in a desert. <laughs> Sometimes we go through desert times in our lives, and today's message is about a desert and times in the life of one person where the desert brought all kinds of challenges and difficulties. So I said earlier, forced to go to an unplanned place at an unplanned pace. Princeton University, New Jersey, private Ivy League school, the fourth oldest university in the United States of higher education, founded way back in the 1700s. Phoebe Warfield, a renowned theologian, they say was the last great Princeton scholar. Phoebe Warfield was a Presbyterian, and he was uh, planning to uh, continue his career as a preacher, and uh, yet he was also one that had higher education. He got married to a lady called Annie Kincaid. And while they were in uh, Germany and Switzerland on their honeymoon, Annie was struck by lightning and uh, became paralyzed. And so for the next 39 years of B.B. Warfield's life, he never left his wife's side for more than two hours. He turned down every denominational appointment and he became a Princeton lecturer and theologian. He chose that, that job because he could go and teach at Princeton and then come back and be at his wife's side. No more than two hours for 39 years. Folks, talk about going to an unplanned place at an unplanned pace. We're going to look at a number of scriptures today found in the book of Genesis. We're going to study 
the life of one who is the first recorded person in the Bible to have ever seen God, the first person ever to have a desert experience as recorded in the Bible, the first woman ever to choose a, a wife for her son, and the first woman to ever be the founder of a town, and she's the mother of many nations that are found in our world today. And we will meet her momentarily, but let's just pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. most important thing that we're going to hear today from this pulpit is the word of God. And we thank you, God, that your word can find a place in our hearts and it can change us. Hallelujah. Although a man speaks at the front, God acts. A miracle happens every Sunday, not the ones that we think about, but that miracle of the word of God taking a place in our hearts and germinating and bringing fruit and bringing victory. Hallelujah. Making a way where it seems there is no way. So God, take your word today and, and, and allow it, God, Help us to allow it to be a sword that will pierce to our hearts and help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let me set the stage for the entrance of this uh, lady into history. About the 6th century B.C., the world was a mess. Morally a mess. Spiritually dark time, idolatry rampant no matter where you went in the world. And so God had a plan to remedy this. He was going to pick a very special person. And through that person and their wife, they would become the parents of a great family and eventually a great nation that would bless the whole world. And obviously you kind of figure out who I'm talking about. Because this people would be unique for, from, from all the surrounding nations. And God would entrust this individual and this nation with his promises and his decrees. And one day, through that nation, his son would come, the redeemer of the world that would forgive anyone who would come to him and allow them then to be able to get to heaven and go through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? He, this nation would ultimately be a channel of blessing to the whole world. And so to accomplish this, God chose a man. His name was Abram. We know him as Abraham, but at first he's Abram. Abram is married to Sarah, who we know as Sarah. So I'll try to make the switch and not make a mistake too many times as we go through this. So to accomplish this, he chose Abram, who was from Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia would have been a place somewhere in Syria, Iraq area. And that's where he was living. And God came to him and said, I want you to go to Canaan, which is modern-day Israel. I have a plan for you. And so Joshua summarizes this in the Bible in chapter 24. It says, this is what the Lord said, the God of Israel says, Long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham, from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. God selected Abram and chose him to be that one with his wife who would become the parents of a great nation, Israel, that would bless our world. And we're here today worshiping because God blessed that family, that couple. So Abram left as God commanded him, but he didn't quite totally obey. 
he went to Haran, which is in southeastern Turkey somewhere. And there he was. Until 75 years of age, God comes along and says, Abram, I told you to leave the land of your parents. I didn't ask you to come to Haran. I asked you to go to Canaan or Israel. And so when he's 75 years of age, Stephen is telling this story in Acts, and and Stephen says it this way, God removed Abraham, removed him from Haran. Doesn't God have a way of getting his own way sometimes? And so he left with his beautiful wife, Sarah, and their nephew, Lot, who they were not necessarily asked to bring along, and he was no trouble, was he? (laughs) Anyway. He arrived in Canaan only to discover when he got there, there was a famine in the land, so down he went to Egypt because there was some food there and they could survive in Egypt. Things didn't go too well in Egypt for Abram and Sarah, and so they decided to head back to Israel or Canaan. So it's in Egypt where his wife, Sarah, likely purchased this young girl called Hagar the one who this story is all about, this Egyptian servant girl. And so they head back, Abram, Sarai, and Lot, Hagar now, and a small entourage back to Canaan, or modern-day Israel. Hagar is referred to, Hagar is referred to as a Shifa, which means maid or concubine. This automatically would exclude her from certain social Hebrew or Jewish circles of the women you know, such as the community of women and wives, etc. Abram and Sarah lived in Israel, the promised land now, for about 10 years. And God comes to Abram, and he says, uh, would you look up at the stars? And so he does, he looks at the stars, count them. If you can count them, that's how many descendants you're going to have. That's in, in uh, Genesis 15, God comes to him. And you're going to become a blessing to all the nations of the world. Wonderful promise. So, but there's a problem. Sarah cannot have children. And, so, and they have no children at this time. So Sarah suggests to Abram that he sleep with Hagar to help God. Because God obviously has a problem here and they need to help him out, right? So this was their solution. Her rationale was, well, I own Hagar. So when she has children, they are legally mine. That was her thinking. Not technically, but legally this child that she would have would therefore be hers. So we start the story of Hagar, although it started a little earlier. It kind of unfolds almost a little bit like a soap opera, but I won't say that today. I'll say it's a little bit more like scenes in a movie. So we're going to look at this in the different scenes. And the first scene I call is, I call it notoriety. And this is about Hagar. It says in Verse 1 of chapter 16. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave, Hagar. And so she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. After Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. Verse 4, it says, He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise Sarah. Then Sarah said to Abram, Your fault. (laughs) You're responsible for all of this. 
I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between me and you, Abraham. The slave is in your hands, Abram said. Hey, you got us into this, right? Do with her whatever you think best. I don't think Hagar ever thought in her her dreams that she would ever go to this place called Canaan or Israel, as we know it today. I don't think that was in her plans. And here she was in Canaan, Abram and Sarah. Talk about going to an unplanned place, Egyptian girl. I doubt if in her wildest dream she ever imagined that this gorgeous mistress, Sarah, I mean, she's gorgeous, guys, <laughs> and women, you have to admit, that, that this wonderful, beautiful woman would not satisfy the needs of her master and, her, and Sarah's husband. Remember, she was so pretty that at age 75, the king of Egypt said, I have to have her. (laughs) Now, they had deceived the king into thinking that she was Abram's sister. So he thought it was fair game until the Lord woke him up and said, Hey, what are you doing with that man's wife? And so at 75, that's what she was doing, turning every head in Egypt. Sarah couldn't produce offspring and fulfill her part of being the mother of this great nation. So she, Hagar would be asked to help God and Abram to fulfill God's promise. So after sleeping with her, she conceived right away. It says she despised Sarah. Hagar did this. Despise means to dishonor her. You can only imagine the notoriety that Hagar feels at this time. what she must have felt. She's going to fulfill the most amazing promise to be the mother of the greatest nation that the world has ever seen is going to bless the whole world. (laughs) Pretty heady stuff. It's not surprising she didn't flaunt it on her mistress, Sarah. Not surprising that Sarah, in turn, envied her because now she could be the one to fulfill this. See, the rationale was that, as, as I said earlier, Sarah said, I can build a family through her because the baby would be her property. And so she places the blame on her husband, as I said earlier, who wisely told her that it was her. She got them into this predicament. She can get them out of it. Sort it out yourself. So it's easy to understand both Sarah and and Hagar. Sarah, arguably the most beautiful woman maybe in the world, who knows, married to the most important man in the world, both with the most amazing opportunity afforded to any two human beings. But Sarah was unable to fulfill her part, and she lived years, decades in frustration. Hagar, on the other hand, a foreigner, a slave girl, is now carrying a child that is destined to change the world. Like I said, pretty heady stuff. Notoriety. Scene two. Obscurity, from notoriety to obscurity. It says in the next few verses, then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near the spring in the desert. It was the spring that's beside the road to Shur. And she said, Hagar, slave, or, and he said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. From notoriety to obscurity. From the greatest joy to probably the deepest sorrow 
at that time in her life, abused, mistreated, dealt with harshly. When it says in the scripture that she was mistreated by Sarah, it means more than just a slap or so. I mean, in those days, physical abuse would have been just par for the course if you were a slave. This woman was so abused that she fled. It can only mean some kind of severe physical abuse that, that she had to go through. So now she is in the desert. She's alone. She's in the, the wilderness. She's wounded in her body and her spirit. I'm sure she's disillusioned. What kind of a God is this that is supposed to be this great God? Wondering why this God is like this. Shame. She's in the desert. Her virginity's taken away. She's pregnant. No income. A hopeless situation, right? Obscurity. It's all over. In the next scene, we have Revelation. Thank God for Revelation. <laughs> the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much so that they will be too numerous to count. Wow. The angel of the Lord also said to Hagar, you're now pregnant and you will give birth to a son and you shall call his name Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. Now Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Does that prophecy come true? Hmm. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Hallelujah. She saw the Lord. That's why the well was called Bir Leheroi. It's still there today between Kadesh and Barad. A visitation, the angel of the Lord. When you and I read through the Older Testament and we come to that phrase, the angel of the Lord, we'll realize there are other places where it says an angel of the Lord. But whenever it says the angel of the Lord, read it so carefully. You will find out that people will bow down to the angel of the Lord and worship that that angel of the Lord, and when you hear their response, they will call the angel of the Lord God, because that is Christ appearing, at the theophany they call it, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, appears to Hagar face to face, the, only re the first recorded person to see Jesus or God face to face is Hagar. From notoriety to obscurity to revelation, Jesus comes. God comes. She says, I've now seen. So we come to the next scene in the story, return. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. 86 years old. End of chapter 16. Just so you know. I'll refer to that later. Jumping ahead to chapter 21. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah. See, her name has changed. As he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he promised. Sarah became pregnant. <laughs> did you add up the years? Sarah became pregnant and bore Abraham a son. His name has changed now. At the very time God had promised, Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. And when his son Isaac was eight, 
days old, Abraham circumcised him as the Lord commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, the Lord has made me laugh, (laughs) right? I don't know if the women would laugh if they had a child at age 90, (laughs) but anyway, that's what it says here. The Lord has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this is going to split their sides, right? And she added, who would have said Abraham and Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne a son to him in his old age. Well, the assumption is that Hagar returns to the family, and her story is believed, and so deemed authentic, and she becomes part of the family, the extended family. A little over 12 years after Hagar returns, God revisits Abram and Sarah. 13 years. He's 86, and God appears to him at 99, 13 years. From chapter 16, the last verse, to the first verse of the next chapter, 13 years, silent years. It's like God says, if you want to try this thing in the flesh, go ahead. But those years are not going to count. And that's a whole sermon in itself. So he picks the 99th year, and he comes again with the promise, see the stars, Sarah's in the tent, Sarah at that time, and she's laughing to herself, you got to be kidding me, I'm going to have a baby, become pregnant, I'm 89, he's 99, what's the deal here? And so circumcision is introduced both physically and symbolically. The promise is reiterated, their names are changed to Abraham and Sarah, Sarah miraculously becomes pregnant at 89 and has a son, Isaac, at the age of 90. And Abraham is an aged 100 years old. One big happy family, right? Uh, Not so far. Next scene, family feast becomes family feud. What does it say in the scripture? Well, the child grew, that's Isaac, grew and was weaned. And on the day that Isaac was weaned, Abraham had a feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son Ishmael. And God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you. Is that good advice, wives? <laughs> because it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I'll make the son of the slave into a nation also because he is your offspring. Abraham loves Ishmael. Abraham loves Ishmael. God loves Ishmael. Amen? Let's never forget that. But he appears, Abraham appears to favor Isaac a little bit more. And so at his birthday, about three years of age, I suppose, when he's weaned, Ishmael's about 16 by this time. And he's got this built-up resentment over the last three years of this unusual attention that shifted over these last three years to this baby brother. The party is just too much for him as he's weaned. 
And so Ishmael begins to mock and taunt this spoiled little half, this brat half-brother, and that's the situation that we just read. Sarah, a switch gets flipped, and she looks at Hagar, and she, he's, she calls her a bondwoman, which means utterly unworthy of attention. Imagine saying that to someone who faithfully has been with you for 10 years and served you. That's the, that's the way she was treated. The family feast has turned into a family feud, which leads to the next scene in the story, rejection and abandonment. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and sent her off with the boy. She went on the way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the skins, the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes and she went off and sat down about a bow shot away for she thought, I can't bear to watch my son die. And she sat there and began to sob. This is the second trip into the desert. Everybody, anybody here been to the desert more than once? Well, she has. Second trip into the desert. This time, with just a little bread and some water. However, let me tell you something. This time, she's going back with something more important than food and water. She's going back with a promise. Remember the promise? I will make your son into a great nation. Hallelujah. Today, you're going to go home. And I pray that there will be a promise that God will put in your heart, and you'll go home today. And you'll have a promise in your heart. It says here, don't be so distressed about the boy. I will make your son into a nation also. Well, sometimes those wonderful promises are just hard to believe, aren't they? When you get into the deepest, darkest times in your life or the driest desert times in your life. Drought and despair, she can't bear to watch Ishmael die because that's obviously what's going to happen. She goes about a bow shot away, doesn't want to hear him cry and die. Promises, I guess, are forgotten or disbelieved. We're not sure. Death is on the doorstep. What else would you or I have done? Right? Rejected and abandoned. Next scene, revelation and rescue. Hallelujah. God heard the boy cry. Isn't that amazing? God heard Ishmael cry. Hallelujah. And the angel of the Lord, here he is again, God, called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter, Hagar? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Today, God wants to say to some parent or grandparent, Don't be afraid. Take heart. God hears that grandson, that son, that daughter crying. He hears them. Isn't that great news? He hears them. We know they're crying, but God knows they're crying. I forgot where I was now. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think I read that scripture. Anyway, verse 18. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation, reiterated the promise. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and the and gave the boy a drink. God heard 
the boy crying. Jesus visits in person a second time. Hallelujah. Needs are provided and promises reiterated. Revelation and rescue. And finally, the last scene is legacy. One verse, two verses, one slide. God was with the boy and he grew up. God was with Ishmael. He lived in the desert and became an archer. And while he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him. There she goes. From Egypt. They lived in the desert. That sacred place. Where people meet God. We meet God in the desert, folks. God was with the boy, it says in the scripture, and he became an archer. He learned how to hunt, and he provided for his mom. Isn't that wonderful? It says they were in the desert of Paran. Paran, or Paran, however you pronounce it, is a place of beauty. That's what it means. Hagar chooses a wife for her son, the only woman in the Bible who chose a wife for her son. Apparently, she lives the rest of her days in the desert as an independent woman and leaves this vast legacy that we have with us today called the Arab Nations. She is known today as the mother of Islam, of course. Her legacy, a community, Fir Heroi, named the community. The well is still there today, they tell me. I haven't made it there yet. Kind of ran into some problems getting there one day. And then she's also the mother of many, many nations. You can see some of them there that are listed. So what do we take home with us today from this story? Well, first of all, she lived and suffered in silence. Sometimes people live and suffer in silence. Without any membership in that Hebrew community, she was an Egyptian, it says. The second thing was, she's a prime candidate for abuse. A woman who, there is not one single solitary word ever recorded in the Bible of her. When you meet somebody that's like that, you can almost be sure. That's a classic case of abuse somewhere. When that person says nothing. Third, the first human being recorded. I'm not sure how Adam and Eve did it. But after them, the first person to ever see God, despite her rejection, her oppression, and her pain. Interestingly, in our Bibles, if we were to read it in the Hebrew, it says the angel of the Lord in our Bibles, English. But it says the first time he appears, he's the angel of Jehovah. Jehovah is the covenant name for God to Israel. And she's still part of Abraham's family. She's just been kicked She's ran away. She's fled from the family. The second time he appears to her, they have washed their hands of Ishmael and Hagar. And he comes to her, and in the Hebrew it says, the God of Elohim, the God of all people. Hallelujah. Thank God he's not just the God of Israel. He's the God of every country, every nation, all the Arab nations, all the people in the world. He is the God of all those And another lesson might be Hagar's desert experience was caused by other people's unjust actions against her. Some of you have lived a life 
with a lot of problems, I'm sure, and troubles, deserts perhaps. And it wasn't your fault, it was caused by somebody else. It happens, that's this life we live in, but it was caused by someone else. Two things I take home from this message, among other things. One is, deserts are places where people meet God. The desert provided a context for God to speak to Hagar. She was given a vision of the God who hears and the God who sees. The desert is a place where people acquire these amazing desert skills for survival. And they are, number one, an exceptional communication from God. Are you in the desert this morning? Are you in a dark time? This is a time when God can come to you and have exceptional communication with you. You weren't ready for it perhaps before. Secondly, it's a time for the exceptional providential help or the care of God, the provision of God. When you're in the desert, you learn to see God like you've never seen Him before. Hear God like you've never heard Him before. And you're able to see God come and provide supernaturally for you. That's the God that we serve. So yes, we're in the desert, and we don't want to be in the desert. We want to be sitting at ease around an oasis, I know. But we're in the desert. Hagar is sent, the second thing in the final of this, Hagar is sent back into her difficult circumstances to begin again, but this time with a promise. You've been coming to church maybe for years, maybe months, and you've heard a message And you've gone home to the same desert experience. God says today, I've given you a promise. And you take it home to your desert place, your difficult place. Perhaps your place of abuse, I don't know. But you could take it home with you. These two desert experiences caused Hagar's life to end in a much different direction than it ever began. Deserts. Edward Abbey says, the desert says nothing. Completely passive, acted upon but never acting. The desert lies there like a bare skeleton of being, sparse, spare, austere, utterly worthless, inviting not love but only contemplation. Carlo Coretti in Letters of the Desert said, The greater part of mankind is called upon to undergo a hard and painful desert experience. William Craft, Ways of the Desert, the death of a loved one, marital crisis, trauma such as rape or assault, physical and mental illness or economic disaster may throw us into a desert. Most spiritual writers contend that we must go through deserts or times of desolation and darkness. Kenneth Leach, in experiencing God, says frequently the movement into the desert is linked with a turning point in life. May God come to you wherever you are in your difficult situation. And may it be a good turning point in your life today. May God do it by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Only God can do those kinds of things. You know, I walked a mile with pleasure. And she chattered all the way. She left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow. Not one word, said she. 
But all oh, the things I learned when sorrow walked with me. Oh, the things that Wardenful Gospel Assembly is going to learn. Not just from having gone through COVID, but the loss of a pastor. Didn't plan that, did you? We planned Pastor Werner to be here preaching today, not me. That's the way it happened. My last Sunday as a full-time regional director in uh, Western District was the second Sunday in March 2020, and the third Sunday COVID hit us all, and we were closing our churches. So I was going to an unplanned place. I was planning to go to the Azores, stay at a Portuguese church, and uh, have some time in ministry and have some time of rest, but that never happened, unplanned. <laughs> About six weeks into my unplanned COVID vacation came a phone call from my second son, and he was crying. His wife had a year previous had a little girl. Now they had two twin, bo twin boys, I should say, two of them, age two, and a little girl just turned one, and she had cancer. That was May, first week of May, second week of May, can't remember. By Thanksgiving, she was gone. That was two years ago now, more than that. My son still has difficulty. You can imagine, two two-year-olds are now two four-year-olds, and the one-year-old has just turned, or she's turning three. Anyway, talk about going to an unplanned place at an unplanned pace. While she was uh, dying of cancer, and, you know, it's COVID, right? So you can imagine the challenges during that time. She's in Sudbury, so you always feel if we were in Toronto, at least we could get some decent care. You can feel that way when you're out in the outskirts. And I think it would have happened, but didn't. Anyway, she wrote on the window of their kitchen. It's still there today, two and a half years later. She wrote, for we know that God works. All things together for the good of those that love. And I said to Sarah, that was her name, I said Sarah, I wouldn't dare write that. But you can write that. I wouldn't dare come to you. That's some kind of encouragement to somebody who's dying. Oh, you know, all things are working together for good. I was pastoring in a, in a church once, and this lady was a missions uh, director, and we were good friends. And uh, in within a week, her husband had a heart attack. Her brother died, and she got in a car accident. And so I, being the caring, loving pastor that I am, wrote her a little note and sent it to her and said, Romans 8:28, all things together work together for good. Sometime later, she said, uh, you know, when I read that, I just wanted to punch you in the nose. <laughs> and now, I'm a little older, a little bit wiser, I completely understand what she's saying. There are some verses that just don't apply. It's better to be said by the person going through the trouble. One closing illustration is a lady, Thelma Thompson. She was newly married, and she married a military man who went into 
the Mojave Desert, which is uh, east of Los Angeles in the California Desert. I don't think it's in Arizona. It's in there somewhere in the Mojave Desert. Now all the rest of the wives stayed behind, and she said, no, I'm going to be with my husband. We just got married. <laughs> and so she, she went to the, the desert, and she said, he was out in training maneuvers. I quote some of the things she said. I was left alone in the tiny shack. That heat was, uh, the heat was unbearable, 125 degrees Fahrenheit in the shade of a cactus. Not a soul to talk to. The wind blew incessantly. All the food I ate and the very air I breathed was filled with sand, sand, sand. <laughs> she was so miserable. And she wrote to her parents and told them she was going to leave her husband and leave that desert and go back home. She couldn't stand it one minute longer. She said, I'd rather be in jail than here. Her father wrote back just two lines. He said, two men looked out through prison bars. One saw mud, the other saw stars. Thelma says, I read those lines over and over. And I made up my mind to find out what was good in my present situation. So I began to make friends with the native people. When I showed interest in their weaving and their pottery, they gave me presents of their favorite pieces that they wouldn't refuse to sell to tourists. She studied fascinating forms of the cactus and the yuccas and the Joshua trees. She learned about prairie dogs. She watched the desert sunsets. She hunted for seashells. Seashells? Yeah, at one time the Mojave Desert was an ocean floor. So she did that. She began to see the beauty in the, na- in the desert. She started, began to study botany. She became an expert, and her work made its way into, I believe, the primary school textbooks. And so some of the pictures that we see would have been pictures that she would have taken about the beauty of the desert. Hmm. Thelma says, what brought this about, this change in me? The Mojave Desert hadn't changed, but I changed my attitude. And in so doing, I transformed a wretched experience into the most exciting adventure of my life. I looked out of my self-created prison, and I found the stars. Hallelujah. God is holding out some stars today to people, some promises. Since COVID, the last two years, it's been a desert for most of us to a certain extent, others to a greater extent, forbidden to visit dying loved ones, been there. Hospital homes and hospitals became prisons. No formal graduations for high school, college, primary school graduates. Athletes that worked so hard looking forward to that special draft day now had to watch it from their living room via Zoom. Have you ever found your place in an, yourself in an unplanned place? going at an unplanned pace. Are you there today? Do you feel like you're in a desert? Take this to heart. Deserts are places where we can meet God. People meet God in the desert. So take that home with you today. Remember I said the second trip into the desert, she went with a promise. I want to let you know if you're going back to an unplanned place at an unplanned pace, There's a promise or two that God has for us today. He says, don't worry about your children. I have a great plan for them. 
Do not fear, for I am with you, God says. Worship team, you can come. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And I like what Micah 7, 7 says. After Micah rehearses the terrible things that are going on in the land of Judah at that time, and he rehearses how bad it is, he says, but I will look to God, and my God will hear me. Hallelujah. Let's stand together. Our God will hear us. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Worship team, just begin to worship uh, or play softly. Heavenly Father, I pray for everyone that's here today or listening online. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to them. We pray that Jehovah will meet them. Elohim will be there. Jesus will be there. Hallelujah. Jesus, visit each person that's hearing this today. For those in the midst of a desert situation, very difficult circumstances, worse than I've even mentioned today, God, give them comfort today. Give them strength today. Pour in that oil, that balm of Gilead, and encourage them and strengthen them and heal them. Father, we give this message to you. God, I pray that your word would be taken home and put in people's hearts, and they will have a jump in their step on Monday morning. Hallelujah. They will have new hope where it seemed there was no hope. They will see the spring of water. They will see the stars and not the bars. So, Heavenly Father, bless your people that are listening today. Bless those that are in this sanctuary. Meet us, we pray, O God. We call out to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Everyone said, Amen.